This is Cabernet and True Crime, the place where good wine and true crime come together. Well, howdy, partners. Welcome to episode 58. Uh, If there's an emotion or feeling past exhausted, I think I'm there. (laughs) Uh, This is very late for an episode to be going up, but at the same time, I felt like a very, um, a very bad dog mom, so I wanted to rectify and remedy that. Um, I've been gone all day long, and uh, Nero, well, he gets socialized during the day, but I didn't want to just, like, get home and then go right upstairs and record, so I spent some time with a little guy. Well, he's not little anymore. He's probably close to 70 pounds now, <laughs> but uh, hung out with him. Um, and I'm kind of trying to be quiet because I think he's downstairs sleeping and I would like it to um, stay that way. So this could kind of maybe be like an ASMR episode, mayhaps. I guess we'll see what happens. Um, at the current moment of recording this, it's hot as fuck outside. Um, it's really cramping my style as far as the um, fall and spooky season goes. Like Labor Day happened and summer is now over. So let's just let's put the put the fork in the summer and we're done with it because now it's time for fall and you know what you can say fall doesn't start until september 20th and or whatever day it is and you know what you're right but fall is in my heart and spooky season is in my heart and therefore i'm just following my heart guys spooky season um but so i'm ready to wear hoodies and transition into fall mode and i can't do that because it's so hot outside i did wear a hoodie out of protest today but my office at my nine to five is like 62 degrees so not by my choice also but it is chilly in there so i can wear a hoodie i don't live in northeast ohio for an endless summer so bringing my fall season and that's that's on the end of that i'm actually really proud of myself for staying on top of things uh as you know i have a really bad habit especially if you've been here for a while, I have a really bad habit of coming in and out of a hiatus with this like true crime endeavor. Technically, this whole thing is a hobby and something I really like to do, but I do have a career that takes up like a good amount of time. And I'm also currently getting my master's, which I think I mentioned before. And that takes just a lot of time and it's not like super easy to just, well, it is, it is just super easy mentally to like drop this off uh, when the going gets tough and when time gets crunched, but at the same time, this is kind of where my passion is and this is what I like to do. And I don't know, it's kind of one of those things where you can't, just because you're busy, you can't let your passion die. You have to make time for things, you know, and that's, that's hard to do. You can't, you can't let your work life dictate your entire life and how, how it goes because you spend a lot of time at that place, ma'am, and you need to have a life outside of that place. So, (laughs) it's just, it's so easy to doom scroll on your phone. I was just thinking about that in the shower. I took my phone in the shower with me and I was just like scrolling on TikTok and thinking, what am I doing? Like, it's so easy to just scroll on your phone and I'm really trying to break myself of that and get into more like, not productive, but, you know, doing more enriching hobbies like reading or, you know, true crime podcasting or writing my book eventually, you know these types of things. But any who, I'll uh, chill on that weird preachy thing I just started to do, and we'll get into this week's episode, which is fine. Um, I never know 
or really can gauge how long I think the intro should be. Once again, this is a completely unedited podcast. I'm sitting in my robe on my bed with my phone in my hand, and when I'm done recording this, it's just going to go up onto the internet. Uh, I kind of just like this. Um, I get really critical of myself when I, especially in the YouTube videos, I get really critical of myself and just kind of get into this loop of not thinking it's ever good enough, but it is good enough and it's perfectly fine, but I'm very critical of myself. So the fact that I just do this and I I make sure the script makes a lot of fucking sense and then just upload this onto the internet. Um, I think I've, I've talked about my process before, which the process, it really isn't, there isn't any process, just do really good research and then you can kind of just go um and housekeep later if you have to really um it's all about being as respectful as you possibly can be and going at it for the most part um but yeah so i i don't know how to how i feel about intros um and I don't know how I feel about intros when I'm listening to other podcasts. Some podcasts have such really long intros. Like I remember some of the My Favorite Murder intros were like 40 minutes long. And that, I think, is just way too long. But then some of my intros have been like less than a minute. And so I don't really know where the sweet spot is. I kind of just talk until I feel like I've talked for long enough. And then I just dive into it, right? I mean, we're at five minutes-ish now, so... I guess I can stop. <laughs> I guess I can stop rambling. That's a sufficient intro. This week's crime, though, I've heard about it before, and I'd at least heard the nickname that was given to the killer. Um, I don't actually remember listening or hearing any other information about it. Um, I do feel like it was on forensic files at one point, which is why this whole case seemed like super vaguely familiar to me. Um, but I've seen forensic files so many times. And usually in that like half asleep, <laughs> the sweet spot between like half asleep and awake where you're barely catching information. Because um, I figure if I just rewatch Forensic Files like 45 times, I'll at least see every episode once, right? <laughs> so I've, I've heard of this one before and I feel like you've definitely heard of this before. And uh, But I went into this looking into it more. And um, as you know, once I start down a rabbit hole, I'm usually following it for as long as I can. And then also typically turning it into an episode and reporting it back to you all. So this one, I got a lot of my information. Um, I usually get a good baseline for Murderpedia. Like if you're looking for like a decent, they basically do a lot of the legwork of combining as many articles as that can be found on the case into one place. Um, usually they're not like completely excellent. So you kind of have to dig a little bit further after that. But I always, always, always appreciate it when there are um, court documents to go off of, just because articles can be a little finicky and wrong here and there. But court documents, obviously, are court documents, so they're always right. Um, So there's always extra fact-checking that needs to go into place. But so a solid part of this information, well, I'd say a solid 70 to 78% of this came from the court documents and what I was able to find online. So... um, We'll get into it. Gary Ray Bowles was born on January 25th, 1962, which that day is ironic because that is my niece's birthday. So that's fun. Um, He was born in Clinton Forge, Virginia, which is kind of like a straight shot north of Roanoke. It's like 50 miles north of there. I've never really been to Virginia, so I'm not sure if there are like other landmarks in that area or not. Um, And from a Wikipedia search, actually, it seems like a small town now but it was actually 
slightly bigger in 1962 when Gary was born. So that's kind of interesting. Um, his parents were William Franklin Bowles and Francis Carroll Pryle Bowles. He had an older brother whose name I am not sure of. I think it's somewhere further down my article or I read it somewhere. I'm not entirely sure. I don't apparently have it in this thing, but he had an older brother. Um, William, though, Gary's dad passed away on July 22nd, 1961. Uh, he, so he died six months before Gary was born. He caught the black lung disease and passed away without ever meeting his youngest child. And as a sidebar, of course, there's a rabbit hole here, because I didn't know much about the black lung disease, um, aside from what was mentioned in Zoolander, which is not a very reputable place to get any type of information. Um, I didn't get the joke as a teenager, apparently, because that's a really kind of dark joke. Uh, black lung is a disease that you get from working in coal mines and from the inhalation of the coal dust. Uh, there is no cure for black lung disease, so that's upsetting. There's only treatment, um, and you can only ease the symptoms, but um, getting diagnosed with black lung disease is pretty much a death sentence. And actually, so fun fact, there were a ton of miners who lost their lives from this because up until 1969, they didn't even recognize it as a disease at all. Um, obviously money hungry people. It was a huge safety concern to be working in the mines because miners are breathing in all that dust. But um, I think because of like the speed of the machine and the types of machine they use, they weren't taking the right safety precautions to give their employees, you know, safe breathing space. And to call it a disease meant that they would have to do something about it. So there was this guy, and I didn't write down his name because I didn't really give that much shit about him, but he was basically lording over them and lording over this information was like, no, it's not a disease. But then the second like he died, they were like, yeah, it's a disease. We need to do something about this. And after they did that, um, there was a safety act um, that went through in 1969, and it's a law now, but it changed the safety standards of the coal industry, which reduced the numbers of miners that got black lung disease by 90%, which is crazy. Uh, yeah. Just think of all the people that had to die before one asshole was like, yeah, fine, it's a disease. And he didn't even do that. He died. So I guess karma's a bitch, but he could have died sooner. He could have. The stupid thing is, is like, right, so he was obviously a big head honcho, but like he never went down on the mines and did anything. But you're going to ride off the backs of people who are doing that and say, like, no, 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 these guys are totally fine. Like, it's not even the coal dust that they're breathing that's giving them black lungs and causing them to die. Why don't you go work down in the mines for a day, bud, and see how people feel about that? I'm sure you're not going to like it, and you might uh, change your opinion on you thinking it's a disease or not. How about you get the black lung and get the disease, and then everybody's going to be like, oh, oh, this guy. Yeah, see? So stupid. <laughs> Sorry. Anywho. So Gary's birth father passed away before he was even born, and his mother, Frances, moved around a lot and got, re got remarried a couple times. So Francis, and this is all well after the fact, but Francis says th that she thought that Gary had a good childhood um, from all accounts, at least up until ages um, seven or eight. His first stepfather was like a super violent guy who often beat both boys with belts or his fists. And Francis said that when she got involved to defend them, she would also get beat. So she divorced him and then she remarries again. And this time is to a man named Chet who is also just violent and awful. 
Chet was an abusive, violent alcoholic. He wasn't just abusive to Gary, but he, ab- he abused Gary's mother and older brother. And around age 10, Gary started to experiment with sniffing glue and huffing paint as a way of escapism. At the age of 13, Gary stood up for himself and attacked his stepfather back. And um, it was him and his older brother who attacked his stepfather. Um, and Chet, what an unforgettable name, he was pretty severely injured in the attack because Gary hit him in the head with a rock a bunch of times. Understandable. But so despite the slight shift in power and kind of like the, the, the tumultuous situation created by that, um, I, I guess, you know, Gary was like, yo, mom, now's your chance. And she decided to stay with him, which nobody knows what the in- innards of a marriage look like. So I can't blame her fault or whatever. It's super hard to leave those situations. So it is what it is. But she um, tried to stay in the marriage and that made Gary really angry. So he set off on his own and became homeless, earning money by being a sex worker for men. And after he ran away, uh, apparently this is part of the story, but after he ran away, he had sex with someone who picked him up as a hitchhiker and that person told him he could make good money as a male sex worker. And just a reminder here, because that's some pretty ballsy information, Gary was only 13 at the time, so all very interesting, all very interesting developments here. Um, And so based off this too, and from interviews, um, Gary never really had a great relationship with his mother. I mean, maybe he did when he was a kid, but basically from 13 on, he really didn't have a great relationship with her for many reasons. And um, he blamed her for how his life would ultimately turn out. Now, I'm not sure what Gary does or where he goes over the next seven years of his life. But in June of 1982, when Gary is 20, He's arrested for beating and sexually assaulting his girlfriend at the time, and um, he's living in Florida with her. So he left fingerprint-like bruising around her neck. She had a large bruise from a bite mark on her breast, and her face had been beaten so badly her eyes were swollen shut. Doctors also told um, the woman, so she had been sexually assaulted during this attack, and she had received internal bleeding to her vagina and rectum as a result of this attack. So he was sentenced to prison time for that. In 1990, he's arrested again for grand theft of a motor vehicle, Um, but in 1991, he's also convicted of an unarmed robbery of the theft of an old woman's purse. He pushed her to the ground and stole it from her, and he was sentenced to four years in prison on that one, but only served two. And so his prison stay is kind of confusing, Um, so I really quickly summarized it, but he was in jail for various offenses from June of 82 to December of 83, October of 85 to December of 85, October of 86 to December of 86, July of 87 to April of 90, August of 90 to January of 91, and February of 91 to December of 93. So those are his whereabouts for that time, because uh, he kept going back to prison, just over and over again, um, until like pretty much right when he gets out of jail. So he gets out of jail in in December of of 2023, December of 1993. And on March 15th, 1994 in Daytona, Florida, police arrive at the residence of 59-year-old John Hardy Roberts. A friend of his had unfortunately found him. Um, What they found was a horrific sight. He had been brutally murdered and was found on his living room floor. John had been strangled and a rag was found stuffed in his mouth. He had severe head trauma and one of his fingers was almost severed from his hand. 
Police made the observation that it looked like an incredible struggle had happened in the house before John Roberts died. Blood was everywhere, the coffee table was shattered, and the glass lamp was also taken out and scattered across the scene. John Roberts' car and wallet, along with everything inside, were missing. This evidence could not could possibly make you think, wow, that was a random robbery, a violent break-in, but obviously not. Not here. Not on this podcast. There were heaps of evidence that pointed to Gary, even at this very first crime scene. Gary's fingerprints were all over the place. He had used John's phone to call his family several times. And of course, Gary's probation paperwork was found at the home, stating his name and everything. So, signs, all signs point to Gary. Uh, John Roberts had offered for Gary to live with him, even temporarily. It's suspected that they had some type of sexual relationship with one another, but whether that was for pleasure or monetary reasons is really unknown. Investigators were able to piece together a scenario where Gary had attacked John with a lamp, which explained the head trauma. John had tried to run, stumbling over the coffee table, where Gary was able to catch him and strangle him. Then Gary stole his car and wallet and fled the scene. They were hunting down the credit cards, because obviously that's a great lead. Um, They had been using Kingsland, Georgia, and Nashville, Tennessee, but that's when the detectives kind of lost the trail on that. Uh, They were too far behind him at that point, and John's car was found in Nashville. Less than a month later, on April 14, 1994, a maintenance man found the decomposing body of 38-year-old David Jarman in his own basement in Wheaton, Maryland. Like John Roberts, David had been badly beaten and then strangled to death. In both cases, a rag was stuffed into the victim's mouth so far down that it damaged the larynx. Also like John, David's car and wallet were missing. Police were able to maintain or able to piece together David's final hours. He had been seen at a gay bar in Washington, D.C. with a man that looked a lot like Gary. After David's credit cards had been used around, police also noted that the signature on the receipt also matched Gary's handwriting. Unfortunately, also like John Roberts, Gary was long gone, and while he left a trail, it wasn't a very strong one. Roberts' car was found abandoned in Baltimore. Um, I'm not sure the distance between Wheaton and Baltimore, but Maryland's not a very big state, so I can not imagine it was very far. Um, And at that point, Gary Bowles had uh, eluded the police yet again. Exactly three weeks later, on May 5th in Savannah, Georgia, The body of 72-year-old Milton Bradley was found behind the shed at a golf club. He had been severely beaten before being strangled. Savannah was rocked by this crime because Milton Bradley had been a well-known citizen. He was a World War II veteran. He had suffered a head injury during the war, which forced him to have a lobotomy, leaving him slightly mentally impaired, which, according to some, made him an easy target for someone unsavory, much like Gary Bowles. Police noted that a Paul palm print had been found at the scene, which of course matched Gary, because who wouldn't it match? Uh, Milton Bradley was also seen multiple times in the days leading up to the murder with a man who met Gary's description. Of course, once again, all signs point to Gary, but how are the police going to catch him? A little over a week later, 47-year-old Alverson Carter Jr. from Atlanta was found. The scene fit Gary's M.O., and there was DNA and fingerprint evidence to connect Gary to the scene yet again. A week after that, on May 19, 1994, Albert Morris is discovered by his parents, deceased. He had been beaten with a blunt object, strangled, and then shot with a shotgun. 
his car and wallet were missing, and it's believed that Gary met Albert at a gay bar in Jacksonville, Florida. It's speculated, like the other victims, that Gary had convinced Albert to let him move in for a time, likely for about a week. The two had been seen arguing at a bar and had been thrown out the night before Albert's body was discovered. It goes without saying that, of course, the police knew Gary is, in their, is their primary suspect. At this point, Gary Bowles had changes his game plan. Um, according to police reports, Gary is able to go by the alias Timothy Whitfield because he found a birth certificate and other identification documents while living with Albert. He used that birth certificate to get a brand new driver's license and now is effectively off the radar. In July, Gary Bowles is featured on America's Most Wanted, which would not be his first appearance. From the program airing, police got numerous leads, but still no Gary. In short succession, Gary also made it to the FBI, uh, FBI's 10 Most Wanted list, as it was suspected that he was blazing up a trail um, up and down I-95, which he's the I-95 killer, which runs the entire east coast of the United States, north-south from Maine to Florida, basically Canada to Florida. Um, this earned him the nickname the I-95 killer, like I just said. And by this time, it's evident that there is a serial killer on the loose and something needs to be done about it. And soon. It may have had something to do with the national attention, but Gary, a.k.a. Timothy, goes silent for a while. That is, until November of 1994. During this time, Gary meets a man named Jay Hinton. Jay is in the process of moving some stuff from Georgia to his home in Jacksonville, Florida, which all of these areas are on the I-95. Gary offers to help him move in exchange for a roommate agreement. On November 16th, Gary goes with Jay to drop off a friend at the train station. Earlier that day, the trio had hung out and had, uh, had smoked some marijuana and had a few beers. When Gary and Jay get back from the train station, Jay goes directly to sleep, but Gary stays up to have a few more beers. At some point, for an unknown reason, Gary goes outside and grabs a large concrete block, which was part of like the um, a walkway paver, and drops it on Jay's head while he's sleeping. Jay was unconscious from the blow to the head, and Gary proceeded to strangle him. Two days later, Jay's sister was worried that she hadn't heard from Jay. It was her birthday, and he hadn't reached out like he normally would have. Her fiancé went to the home to check on him. All the lights were on, but no one was home. Jay's car, a Cadillac, was gone. The couple came back a couple of times over the next few days, waiting for him to come home or to see signs of him coming and going from the house. By the time Jay had missed work, two day, missed work for two days, they decided to enter the home and investigate. They broke the back window to get in and were greeted by a foul odor, and Jay's decomposing body was found in the bathroom covered by blankets. A receipt was found in the home with the name Timothy Whitfield. Jay's car and wallet were missing, but what tipped off investigators was that Gary was his uh, oh, that was Gary's calling card, which uh, Jay had a rag shoved in his mouth and down his throat, which all these all these um, victims did. It was, it was his M.O., and it was his calling card of everything, that they all had something stuffed in their mouth and kind of down their throat. Which, of course, you think in the back of their minds, like, obviously the detectives have to know this is Gary at this point, which is so um, odd. Normally, I feel like in cases like these, in serial killings like these, police don't have any idea who their suspect is and don't have any idea how they're going to catch it. The crazy and wild part about all this is that they, they knew exactly who he was this whole time, and they've been trying to catch him. And it's not like he's, like, particularly crafty and, like, conniving and smart. It's just he 
I feel like he just keeps getting lucky, which is such a nasty word to use because obviously he's not lucky. He's fucking murdering people. But the fact that it just, he keeps missing them by, I mean, not even, it's minutes, it feels like, where it's just, they're just half a step behind him and not just close enough to catch him. It's so um, different than your normal, you know, your normal cases. But so they know it's him for obvious reasons. And they, they know that Gary is out there using an alias at this point. But it's not known if Gary knew that they knew that. So they went out with a sketch of Timothy, and I'm using air quotes that you can't see, but they went out with a sketch of Timothy and started hunting. After the search started, it only took two days for the authorities to find Timothy Whitfield. On November 22, 1994, they found him at a labor pool in Jacksonville Beach. They let him know that they knew who he was. They said, we know, I know that you know that we know who you are. And they know that he is actually 32-year-old Gary Ray Bowles. And after an intense interrogation, he confesses to the murder of Jay Hinton. Gary admitted to the authorities that same day that he was also responsible for the murder of two other men in Florida, Florida, John Roberts and Albert Morris. The FBI had already been involved with both murder investigations because obviously it's going over multiple states during, you know, and the FBI's most wanted list. So, like, the FBI have been involved this whole time. Um... And yeah, Gary was already a suspect long before all this. Like, Gary has pretty much, since the get, has always been a suspect. And they were, the FBI was also involved in three other murder cases, which we talked about, and also which Gary was the primary suspect. So, he's no stranger to the FBI. They know who he is. He doesn't know who they are yet, and they don't, he doesn't know what's about to happen to him, but they know who he is. On December 8th, uh, Gary was indicted on two counts, um, the first-degree murder of Jay Hinton and robbery. Gary pled guilty only to the charge of first-degree murder. They recommended the death sentence. Oh, obviously, he was convicted of first-degree murder. Uh, but they recommended the death sentence uh, by a vote of 10 to 2, which was agreed to by the court, and it was suggested at the time that Gary be executed by means of electric chair. There was a mess of appealing that ensued after this. Um, and seeing that we're only at 26 minutes, I feel like I probably could have put this in. But court documents, especially like the appealing process, it just goes on for so long. And the, I, in the most part, the outcome's still the same. Um, so I just left it out. Uh, but there's a mess of appealing that goes on after this. It's all available on murderpedia.com if you want to look it up. Or, I mean, if you Google like, the case. Um, and, like... Literally goes back and forth. The death sentence was first given out, and then it was overturned. And then the case was to be set through again for new sentencing. And in the resentencing, though, see, this part's interesting. In the resentencing, though, so the first time he was sentenced, he was only, it was only for the murder of Jay. Um, in the resentencing, though, some of the other crimes were included in the state's case, like the sexual battery, robbery, and first-degree murders of John Roberts and Albert Morris, which he already pled guilty to, those were involved in the second set of sentencing. So he appealed all this, hoping he was going to get out of the death penalty. And the state said, uh-uh-uh-uh, you confessed to two other murders, and so we're going to slap you with that, because if you think you're getting out of the death penalty, <laughs> you're in for a sick surprise, brother. You know, so they, they hit him with that. And, of course... On May 27th, 1999, after literally an hour of deliberation, 
the jury returned and found Gary guilty and suggested that he be sentenced to death in the electric chair. So he got nowhere with that. Um, just wasted a lot more money and, I mean, luckily, uh, was convicted for the murders of three people as opposed to one. So all kind of good things, but it just it's taking up time and money to do all this at the same time. So I see it from both sides. Um, yeah, so I, I looked into it and somehow somewhere between 1999 and 2019, the method of the death penalty in this case had changed because it was originally the electric chair, but on August 22nd, 2019, 57-year-old Gary Bowles was set to receive the death penalty by lethal injection at this point. Um, that day, he had chosen to not say anything to to anybody. He didn't want to make a statement, but he had written a letter before um, his time, his clock stopped ticking. Um, it was released after the sentence was carried out, but it said, and these are quotes, I never wanted this to be my life. You don't wake up one day and decide to become a serial killer. He apologized to Jay's loved ones, but none of the other victims' families. Bowles thanked his attorneys and his friends. He also thanked the warden and employees of Florida State Prison for treating him with respect during the 73 days he was on death watch and that they helped him feel human again. He also made a comment to his mother that said, I want to tell my mother that I am also very sorry for my actions. Having to deal with your son is being, being called a monster is terrible. I'm so very sorry. And it's interesting because um, one of the people who worked on this case, I don't know, they were part of like the legal aspect of it, but they said that they were shocked by the statement because they didn't think a person like Gary was capable of feeling remorse or these types of emotions. Now, obviously, it didn't change anything, and I don't know if it was written to, like, sway the minds of people or what. Um, well, obviously, we'll never know. But so I, but there's a lot of people who, um, not a lot of people, there's a few people who question the intention of this and whether it was genuine or if it was like he was hoping somebody would read it before his execution was handled. You know, was it real or was it a manipulation tactic? Um, for his last meal, he ate three cheeseburgers, french fries, and some bacon. Uh, he was wheeled out on a gurney. 29 people sat on the other side of the window to watch him die. Most of those were retired law enforcement officers and those who had worked on the Jay Hinton case. One minister was present, and there were four members of the media. None of his victims had spouses or children, and after being on death row for almost 21 years, most of the family members had also left this planet. At around 10.45 p.m., the lethal injection process had been completed and Gary Ray Bowles had been removed from this world. And one of the people, and I think it was the same guy who said he didn't feel like that um, letter was genuine um, because it was too like sincere and too remorseful, he also made a comment that uh, he didn't think this type of death was appropriate for such a monster because all of Gary's victims had been killed in such a violent and aggressive manner and to watch him slip away peacefully and calmly didn't seem like a fair punishment to Gary and I would agree to that. I personally feel like uh and this is my own personal opinion but if you are convicted of murdering people without a with and you're going to be death on death sentence and your death penalty I think it should be given to you the same way that you gave it to somebody else and all the things that you did while you were killing that person 
should also be done to you, just so in you know, your last moments you can uh, just really get you know, the full effect of why you're being sentenced to death. Um, definitely not humane, definitely controversial, but also just don't kill people on purpose. Don't be a serial killer and then get a peaceful death, in my opinion. These are just my thoughts. Don't, nobody hate me for that. Um, but yeah, that was Gary, that was Gary Ray Bowles. He was the I-95, uh, killer, serial killer. Um, I don't ever really remember hearing about that one, but I am pretty sure I, I mean, I feel like everybody's heard about that one, but maybe not, because, I mean, it all kind of felt like a fever dream. Oh. (laughs) Sorry about that. Nero has apparently spotted something outside that he needs to guard dog about but so i guess that is my cue to um end this thank you for listening if you did um i appreciate every one of you each and every one of you um with that (laughs) i'll see you next week